Please, will you pray with me? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable to you in your sight. O Lord, my light and my salvation. Amen. We continue today with our exploration of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. When we left off last week, Philip had shared the good news of Jesus Christ with the Ethiopian eunuch and with the people of Samaria, defying cultural taboos and crossing boundaries north and south. Now the focus shifts to Saul as he seeks to suppress the growing Jesus movement north of Israel, north of Jerusalem. For some of us, this story will probably sound familiar. Saul, a major nemesis of the Jesus movement, sets out from Jerusalem for Damascus. Saul is bound for Damascus because he heard that some Jesus-following Jews, these people of the way, have crossed the borders of the Jewish communities there, entering into the synagogues. And as an upstanding Jew, and a person of rank in his own Jewish Pharisee community, Saul is going to conduct raids to ferret out these, to him, misguided and degenerate Jews. Then he's going to bind the Jesus followers up and imprison them indefinitely until a trial, much like the trial that ended with Stephen's being stoned to death. Saul has a certain way of seeing. He looks at these Jesus followers who were Jewish and yet not of his sect, and he asks, what's wrong with you? You and I might find ourselves asking the same thing when we see people who are unlike us in the news or in the street. What is wrong with you? It's a rhetorical question, really. I think we're pretty sure we already know the answer. Saul sure did. They, as opposed to us, they are breaking the law. They are defiling the purity of our group with their disregard for the rules. They act all weird and they look different and they speak in strange tongues. It's like they have no respect for what's right and proper. Sound familiar? When Saul breathes threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, I can imagine him mumbling these sorts of resentments under his breath. And yet, at one time in my life, these very resentments colored my own view of folks who were migrating to the United States. Oh, I, I wouldn't go as far as Saul in persecuting immigrants, but like Saul, quietly holding the cloaks of the people who were stoning Stephen, at the time I sure would stand by in silent judgment of how strange, how other, how illegal these immigrants were. I think many of us do this 
object to people unlike us, as hurt people who can be hurtful of others, we come to see the world through fearful, wary, mistrustful eyes. We make people into others, the them to our us. We, we do this, I think, to protect ourselves. It's a survival instinct. But Jesus came that we might have love and have it abundantly. Jesus came that we may not just survive, but thrive. And thankfully, through the person of Jesus, God comes to know firsthand just how lost and mixed up and unskilled at seeing we humans can be. And in response, God interrupts us. And sometimes, God's interruptions look like a daring emergency eye surgery. God casts off our protective safety goggles and gets personal. Saul, Saul, the voice booms, calling him by name, capturing his full attention. The brilliant light that knocks Saul down and blinds him is clearly meant for his eyes. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. Saul knows that these special effects were just what the doctor ordered for past prophetic visions, like those of Moses and Ezekiel. So Saul realizes that this is a textbook moment of God revealing God's self. And I will add that unlike ours, God's sound system never acts up. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the reply comes. The risen and ascended Jesus reveals himself to Saul. It is a moment of shattering clarity. Jesus is not some dead guy whose followers pretend he is the Messiah, God's chosen Savior. No, in that moment, Saul knows in every fiber of his being that Jesus is alive. Saul sees that Jesus is the living Christ, sent by God into the world to rescue us from all that is life-limiting and death-dealing. Saul sees the salvation God has promised here, now, in Jesus. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you are persecuting my followers. He says, you are persecuting me. Jesus makes it clear that he is suffering with the Jews who are being hunted and imprisoned and stoned by their own people because they call him their Savior. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God with them. Jesus is in and with the people who are hurting the most. Now, I don't remember when I had my first come-to-Jesus moment around immigration. I don't recall when I first realized that immigration isn't some far-off issue, irrelevant to me here in Massachusetts. But I do remember when I first looked stunned 
at this contemporary icon, Christ of Mary Knoll, right up there on the screen, painted by Robert Lentz. In this icon, I see Christ, the immigrant, fleeing violence and death and seeking asylum. I see Christ bleeding and pleading to be admitted across the border. I see Christ ready to pry the barbed wire from the fence to let his loved ones through, unsure whether he'll find safety once they cross into the United States. Jesus is alive in the immigrants and in the Jesus-following Jew. It changes Saul and it changes us to see Christ in people we once despised or discounted or disavowed. But that initial seeing, powerful as it may be, is not enough. It often leaves us in the dark, disoriented, and in need of guidance. And so the heavenly light fades, and Saul's perplexed companions lead him by the hand to Damascus. And once there, he has nothing to eat or drink for three days. It is a period of preparation, a kind of dying to his former self, a denial of all the hate that has not nourished him. Not really. And there he waits, a man who has been killing Christ in the name of God. Saul waits for his teacher. For we need to learn in community how to see with new eyes. Yes, God interrupts us. And sometimes God's interruptions look like a tender border crossing that brings unlikely people together. Enter Ananias. Not the Ananias from a few weeks ago, the man who withheld some of the proceeds of his property from the community of the early church. Different guy, same name though, meaning God is merciful. And God calls this Jesus-following Jew named Ananias to nothing less than an act of courageous mercy. He is to go and lay his hands in a healing prayer on Saul, the very man who has been persecuting him and killing his people. And Ananias is to go, trusting that God chooses unlikely saints as instruments for the good news, the saving, disruptive message that God's grace, forgiveness, and mercy are for all people, including us, and especially including them, the ones we love to hate and demean and exclude. And you know what? Ananias does it. Not only does he go meet Saul face to face, but he greets him as one of his own. He calls Saul brother. And he extends to Saul the promises of Christ. He will be healed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what Ananias saw when he looked at that unshaven, grimacing, 
cowering body of his one-time enemy. But my hunch is that Ananias had been raised up in the compassion of Jesus in his, in his Jesus-following community. My hunch is that he saw right through the sum of Saul's hurtful sins to the hurting man within. Instead of asking, what is wrong with you, Saul? I imagine Ananias pondering, what happened to you, Saul? What happened to you? And then Ananias beheld the answer, same as the answer to the traumas of his own life. Jesus happened to me. He lives, and I have seen him. I have seen the Lord. And in that moment of encounter, that moment of healing intimacy, after three days in a sightless tomb, Saul's eyes are open. He immediately gets baptized so that he may see himself and be received into the community as the child of God he has always been. It is a moment of profound rightness within and between these two followers of the way of Jesus. So often, it takes an encounter with another human being to raise us up to new life in Christ, to transform how we see. It wasn't until I gave a ride one day to a man whom I will call Josiah that my eyes were opened and my heart changed. Josiah was dark-skinned and soft-spoken with eyes that seemed to radiate their own light. I had picked Josiah up at the request of a network of folks who are accompanying asylum seekers in the Boston area to and from court and other places they need to go, safeguarding them from being picked up by immigration officials for being undocumented. Immigrants in Massachusetts are ineligible for driver's licenses, so I gave Josiah a ride to work in Woburn. And as I pulled away from the curb, I asked if he would tell me a little bit about himself. In the half hour that followed, I heard about how Josiah had been persecuted by his country's authoritarian government for fighting for jobs for other young people like him, who's about my age. I heard about how he resisted and resisted until he had lost everything. His wife, his five-year-old, his five-year-old child, his cause, his country. He fled and was picked up at the U.S. border, and last I knew, was fighting a case to be granted asylum. On that car ride, I saw the deep courage in Josiah, the fierce honesty of his tears, and his resolve to fight for his people and his life. I saw that he was my brother, even though our lives originated thousands of miles apart. I saw his preciousness, his worth and dignity. I saw the Christ in him, seeking the safety that I long for for myself and for my family and for all people. I, I can't help wondering if Josiah's five-year-old boy had survived 
and had come with his father to the U.S. to seek asylum, what would be happening to him now? If, like me, you are seeing what is happening at the detention centers and the internment camps at our southern border, if you are seeing the squalor in which children are being held, abused, caged without toothbrushes or soap, draped in foil blankets, shivering from cold and terror, if you are seeing the mothers wailing for the children taken from their arms and the fathers who never make it across the border alive, if you are seeing these horrors and your heart is aching like mine, please come see me and let's talk. There are concrete ways we can respond. I have posted some suggestions for actions we can take from the Massachusetts Conference's Immigration, Refugee, and Asylum Seekers Task Team. You can find that list on the door to my office downstairs. I know that we, in this room, bring different political persuasions to the issue of immigration. But we are not talking about an issue, abstract and fuzzy and debatable, we are talking about people. We are talking about human beings in whom the human one, Jesus, is alive and yet bravely suffering. We are talking about children who are crying in the night with no one to comfort. We may not like it, but God interrupts us. And sometimes, God's interruptions look like acts of loving liberation. God in Jesus Christ explodes the confining cages and scrambles the tidy borderlines we use to order our lives. Because God longs to set us and all who are imprisoned free. Because God has an eye for what is right with us. God sees us and our world as whole and holy. So friends, I invite us first to pray. To pray that God, who is our daring eye surgeon, our tender border crosser, our loving liberator, that God keep on interrupting you and me. Saul's work was not done after his eyes were open, he began to proclaim the good news. And though he too lost almost everything, he gained a life free from fear in a community of unlikely saints. And so I pray also that God keep moving us from griping, what's wrong with you? To instead wondering, what happened to you? And then finally, to appreciating what's right with you. We too, unlikely saints that we are, can learn to see anew with curiosity and compassion. May the Christ in them reflect the Christ in us until all we see are our siblings, children of a God who knows no borders. Amen.